Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. Christmas is right around the corner, so why don't you cozy up by the fireplace and listen to a few scary stories? Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Every Christmas, the kids in my town must fight to save us from Santa. Written by Trash Tia. The crate of coke just sitting there in a patch of grass was definitely a trap, but there was no way I was ignoring it. Sitting cross-legged in dirt, my classmate's blood running down my face, I gulped down diet soda until it was frothing in the back of my nose and I was gleefully choking on it, burping and giggling, reveling in the ice-cold flush of relief drowning my sandpaper throat. I didn't expect soda. Townspeople were allowed to send pretty much anything to contestants, whether that was food or stuffed toys to keep up morale. I had a plastic duck in my backpack from an anonymous donor, who was definitely my neighbor. I wasn't sure why she stayed anonymous. I guess if she gave her name, she would be actively participating in watching me kill to survive. My neighbor always said that she was against the event, refusing to look me in the eye when I was dragged into an awaiting van, my hands tied behind my back. Still though, it was nice of her to send me a rubber duck. I had had a lot of gifts over the last three days, but soda was a new one. Bottled water was a given, of course. I had seen a guy perched in a tree, happily sipping a white claw before getting his brains blown out by Alyssa Riley, who was surprisingly and scarily good with a sniper. I could ask questions until I was blue in the face. The who, what, why, and how a crate of eight perfectly plastic-wrapped Diet Cokes were sitting in front of me, except I was tired, hungry, and would commit murder for a fresh can of soda. I didn't care crawling over to them and tearing into the packaging like a rabid animal. The soda felt perfect in my hands. I didn't think about my fingers caked with fleshy pink, my skin that would never be clean again. I think I stopped coherently thinking after my third or fourth kill, which meant despite being fully aware of human brains splattered all over me, I just enjoyed my drink. I was on my third can, half aware of the barrier standing several yards away from me. I could sense their faces pressed against it, eager eyes awaiting the next kill. In my training, I was told to never look at the barrier that sealed us from the outside. We were like zoo animals, a yearly, festive attraction for all to see. If we saw our faces, what we had been reduced to, animals covered in our friend's blood and bone, we would go insane. My father, the winner of the 1996 event, had allegedly told me the exact same thing, holding me in his arms and then hanging himself an hour after I was born. And Dad displayed himself inside an empty waiting room for all to see, hanging from the ceiling fan in tangles of bandages resembling an angel. It was a spectacle people had painted and written about in town journals, a previous winner hanging himself minutes after the birth of his son. Some people called him a coward, while others believed my father had been reborn on the battleground as Jesus Christ himself. 
He was the reason why townspeople were convinced that no matter what we did, and how many children our town slaughtered each year, spilling blood in the name of a sacred animal, Santa Claus would never be satisfied. Christmas Eve, 1978. Five senior kids who would quickly become infamous for plunging our town into despair kidnapped Blitzen, Santa's reindeer, while Santa was delivering gifts. In their minds, they thought a reindeer held power and immortality. So they dragged it from the sleigh sitting on top of the high school, tortured, killed, and then dismembered it, before setting the carcass alight in the woods nearby. Unsurprisingly, the kids were not granted magical powers or immortality. Santa was quiet at first and left our town without a word. Immediately, our mayor tried to cover it up, disposing of Blitzen's remains and holding a town meeting, urging people to never speak the reindeer's name again. They thought that they got away with it. A whole year passed by and Christmas came once again our town filled with festive lights and decoration. On Christmas Day, however, there were no presents and stockings. Instead, half of the senior class were found skinned of their flesh, still in their beds, with Blitzen's murders being reduced to reddish pulp staining their sheets. The parents ended themselves over what was left of their children. And Grammy described it as a massacre so bad that they knocked on the high school both ashamed of those five students and horrified by the senior bloodbath of 1979. Santa sent a very clear message the following year. To make up for their children's sins, every child would spill blood in Blitzen's name. If they refused, he would start picking off citizens himself. In the early 80s, I don't think my town believed it. So, they went on as normal and attempted to hold both a holiday and a day of mourning for the dead, which was quickly interrupted by demonic elf-like creatures that ripped apart half of the mourners, parents and children alike. The more that our town resisted, Santa tightened his iron fist. Babies were born with contorted bodies and heads, choking up tinsel. The town was overridden with festering bugs on every sidewalk the light turning blood red and a plague hitting the preschool. So yes, Santa wasn't messing around. Which meant that Livingswood had to find a way to spill the blood of several dozen children every year to save themselves. Mom told me that Santa himself was in talks with the mayor and both had come to a sort of agreement. First was that every citizen born after 1980 would not be allowed to leave the town trapped inside its wrath. Every year on December 23rd, half of the senior class would take part in a three-day kill-or-be-killed style event, with the winner the last one standing and gifted with a choice. Ring the bell at the stroke of midnight on Christmas Day and grant Livingswood another year of mercy, or fail to ring it and plunge the town into darkness allowing Santa and his little helpers to rip the town and its civilians apart. The town knew what he was capable of, and they had no choice but to agree to these terms. Now, it's not like kids didn't protest and refuse to take part. Parents with power attempted to take control and the spotlight away from their own kids. Initially, Livingswood attempted to play the system, 
the mayor's children were automatically excluded on the grounds of them being too important. And parents and teachers were influenced to pick students from either broken backgrounds or with poor test scores. Santa immediately slaughtered three girls at random, right in front of their parents. Never there in person, but his methods were horrific. Described as watching an invisible mouth, a gnawing tumor, tearing the body apart from the inside. His argument was that five children from completely different backgrounds had killed Blitzen. Three of them were rich kids with serious cash while two had been either living in government housing or the trailer park. Every student was guilty in his eyes. Santa didn't see individuals. He just saw a town full of poisoned children, psychotic murderers who were to be punished each year to make up for the town's sins. So participants were chosen by Santa himself. The kids eligible for the event would put out a stocking on December 1st. White candy canes were safe while red ones marked them for death. When I was eight years old, I had a screaming fit over the song, Santa Claus is coming to town. The town was not subtle in training us from preschool that Santa was not a good person. I already knew. Santa Claus was the reason for my mom's excessive drinking, and the cult dedicated to my dead father being the next reincarnation of Jesus or something like that. Santa Claus had murdered my father. He didn't bring gifts for us on Christmas Day. Santa trapped the high schoolers behind a magical barrier halfway across town and forced them to hunt each other. When I was 10 years old, training began. First, we were told the story of Blitzen's death, and then the town mayor with a strained smile and trembling voice stood in front of us and told us that only the lucky ones would be chosen to fight for our town. And we were taught what our choice would be once victorious. Ring the bell and save the town. There is even a song made out of those words, purposefully catchy to stick in our heads. Ring the bell and save the town. La 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 la. One mom wasn't blackout drunk on the couch, she fought to make sure my candy cane was never red. And to her credit, mom almost protected me. She argued that our family had already fought for the town, granting Livingswood years of mercy that they did not deserve. However, according to the mayor, dad being victorious in 1996 was not a good enough reason for him to spare me. November 30th, I burned the stupid stocking before I went to bed. I think Santa considered me and the other kids who had parents that were previous winners as legacies. So it's not like I was surprised when I awoke to find the stocking on the foot of my bed. Despite me burning it to dust and pouring the dust down the drain, one single red candy cane had dropped out, and I burst into hysterical laughter that quickly turned to sobs heaving my chest. I tried to hide it, eating it only for the candy to creep back up my throat, choking my tongue and slicing my mouth open when it slipped from my bloody lips, fully intact. I tried to hide it from my mom, but even barely sober and awake, she held out her hand. Candy cane, please. I didn't look up for my cereal. It's white, 
I lied, pasting on my best smile. Mom broke out into a grin that was, dare I think, maybe sober, and saluted me with her glass of orange juice. My baby is a winner. Her slur was clearing up slightly. Mom reached across the table and grabbed my face, cradling my cheeks. I had to swallow sour barf. Her smile was far too wide, tears slipping down her cheeks. She tightened her grip like clinging on might save me. Just like your father, she spluttered through hiccups. Mom knew. I could see a red candy cane sticking from her pocket when she pulled away. I almost choked on my coffee. Santa was a cruel person. He didn't just present me my fate. The guy made sure my mother knew of my inevitable death at the mercy of my classmates too. Mom didn't say anything. She only made me my favorite pancakes and drowned them in chocolate syrup. I had mandatory training for the whole class that day. If we missed one session, we were automatically entered into the event, and our family executed. So I hugged her with a growing lump in my throat and headed to school. When I returned, I knew exactly what I would find. Unlike my father who wanted his body to be found and remembered, my mother had left me with a single shot to the head. Mom didn't have people crowded around her like Dad did. She died alone in our pitch-dark living room, curled up, lying in a stemming pool of red. When I dropped to my knees by her side, her blood was freezing cold, thickening into a paste and drying into her favorite sheepskin rug. She took her own life minutes after I left for class. Mom's death meant nothing to anyone but me, and the weird cult made up in my father's name. Neither the cops nor the coroner took her body. They were too busy hunting down chosen kids trying to escape town, and their fate. I wrapped mom in sheets and left her on her bed. Dad's cult broke into her house on the eve of the 23rd of December, throwing themselves on the ground in front of me, their faces cast in candlelight. They were bowing. To them, I was my father's legacy who would do the town a favor. In their messed up minds, they believed my father's death was symbolic, and that he hung himself to represent the town giving in to Santa's will. I'm pretty sure it was depression and trauma, PTSD that kept him up all night screaming, that killed him. But you can't argue with crazy. They crashed through my door bearing festive masks, decorated in tinsel into colorful lights. The ringleader was definitely a teenager. Somehow these crazies had managed to brainwash scared kids in my class into joining them, and if they were chosen going against rules, failing to ring the bell then plunging our town into the dark. The cult wanted mom to use as a so-called beacon for the opening ceremony. I told them to go screw themselves. Thirteen years of mental and physical training, I no longer felt emotion the way that humans are supposed to. Core memories are supposed to begin around the age of preschool, where the brain starts to become self-aware. Kids are taught basic languages and numbers. We were taught how to fight. As littles, we were exposed to horrible things and murder, read on both screen and in person, 
It was supposed to desensitize us. But I think it just made 50 psychopaths torn of empathy and emotion. After all, you'll never be truly okay after being splashed in the face with blood at a young age. I don't think that I'll ever get it out of my head even years later. It was a lesson teaching us how to properly sever the veins in the throat muscles. So our victims couldn't scream, of course. I remember the slick blade of the knife slicing into flesh. I screamed the first time that warm wet redness splattered my cheeks. The second, third, and fourth times I only stared. I was nine when I killed my first person. A single gunshot to their head. After that, I stopped truly feeling anything at all. I didn't feel regret when I leapt onto the cult leader, already knowing exactly how to squeeze the breath from his lungs. This kid had my exact training, but he wasn't using it. I think he wanted me to kill him. Ripping off his Santa mask like a Scooby-Doo cartoon, the guy's expression was riddled with insanity. Do it, he mouthed rotten teeth stretching into a grin. Daniel Oliver was like me. His mom was the winner of the 1994 event. She had Daniel and twin girls, killing the twins and then herself, leaving Daniel and his father behind. I wasn't surprised that he bought the BS that his parents did the right thing, and they were in fact symbols of our dying town. I didn't choke him. Wrestling the kitchen knife from his struggling hands, I plunged the blade into his eyes so I didn't have to look at him, at what he was trying to tell me. Poisoned, Daniel giggled, blood frothing between his lips. His laughter was hysterical when he got to his feet, one hand over his socket. I guess the rumor was true that kids our age didn't feel proper pain. We're all poisoned. He blindly reached out to me, blinking through intense red running in rivulets down his face. But you know what to do now, don't you? Narrowing his good eye, the boy's lip curled. You're Ben Ashcroft's son. You can do what's right. I cocked my head, curious. And what is right exactly? His smile widened. You were chosen. I don't like to broadcast it. His manic giggle sent shivers down my spine. Then you know what to do, just like your father. We sinned as a town, we killed a sacred beast, and there's no running away now. We will keep dying, offering our children to darkness and despair that is endless, that will never stop. They will keep dying, and the survivors will be creating future murderers and corpses for a town that does not deserve a second chance. Daniel's expression twitched, and for the fraction of a moment I swear that I saw coherence. He wasn't crazy, he was upset. It was enough to send me stumbling back, phantom bugs choking, filling my mouth. Unless... He caught himself, exhaling a breath. You end it. I opened my mouth to speak before he cut me off. Oh, my mom tried to tell us, he said, his voice breaking. Mom killed herself and my sisters because, because we are all poisoned. His eyes were tragic suddenly, lips wobbling. 
This town and its people are tainted and wrong. Daniel offered me a weak smile. You need to put us all out of our misery. I called him a nut job, shoving the idiot out the door. Two days later, 13 of my classmates were dead. I was trapped behind a magical barrier standing between me and survival, picking pieces of bone like cat's teeth clinging to my sweater. I was wrong about the no longer feeling empathy and emotion part. I was a stupid kid and thought that I wouldn't feel when I killed. Oh, I was sorely mistaken. Maybe something was in the air, Santa's mind control cursing us with emotions or maybe I was actually just breaking apart inside. Daniel was right and I had made my decision after losing my friends. Daniel was right. Dad was right. We were all dead people walking. I didn't mean to join a group. Three kids that I would never usually hang around with. After being knelt in crap for hours listening to kids being slaughtered, I needed human interaction, even if it was fellow contestants capable of one-shotting me in one single swoop. Kenji, Klee, and Alex. In training, we were told to stay independent and avoid forming groups and attachments unless it was beneficial to us, or a luring tactic. I found them by accident. Klee stepped on a branch and squeaked, revealing her position. She was pretty obvious, bright red curls glinting in the afternoon sunlight. And not to mention, she was standing there smiling at a butterfly. My only weapon was a knife and she had a 9mm magnum. Klee had the advantage, so I thought for sure that she would shoot me in the face and then skip away. She almost did, until two figures were bounding from the trees and stopping her. Kenji was their leader, a sharp-faced kid with a shaved head and a too-friendly smile, and Alex, a brunette with a permanent scowl. Kenji introduced their little group as the pacifist. Kenji stuck his gun in my forehead with a playful smile. Join us or die. I slipped my fingers into my jeans, easily inching around the handle of my knife. Do you know what a pacifist is? Maybe was all that he responded with a laugh. We had all been groomed to be killers since birth, so I knew that Kenji would kill me in a heartbeat if he wanted to. His hands were wrapped expertly around the butt of the gun. His eyes were exactly what I expected, insanity mixed with a splintered emotion. I watched his finger dance across the trigger. Do you like mac and cheese? His question took me slightly off guard. I lowered my hand slightly, my fingers loosening around the knife that I had been ready to plunge into the side of his head. What? Mac and cheese, he shrugged. Someone in town sent me a giant steaming pot of pasta and cheese, and we don't know what to do with it. Kenji nodded at my knife, his lip quirking. So, you can either kill us or come eat some yummy pasta. I jumped when the gun slipped from his fingers. He was unarmed. I could easily sever a vein within that close. After all, Kenji's gaze followed my knife. It's Christmas, why don't we celebrate? His words twisted my gut. I had never celebrated Christmas. I knew what the rest of the world did watching movies and TV shows. 
Normal people's stockings weren't filled with candy canes marking them for death. In fact, it was just candy. Normal people strung lights in trees and even brought in trees from the outside and decorated them. It was called a Christmas tree. Olivianswood, however, was terrified of acknowledging the holiday. Alex folded his arms, still scowling, though there was maybe the slightest quick of a smile trying to curve on his lips. We've got food and lights, he grumbled, if you want to join. Clee nodded eagerly behind him. Yes, we're having our own holiday meal. Oh, the joys. Alex rolled his eyes, but his eyes were warm for Clee. I thought they were joking until they took me back to their little hiding spot. And there it was, a big old pot of pasta. The crappy, battery-powered Christmas lights blinking in the dirt where they wouldn't be detected should have made me cry. The pasta that melted in my mouth when I shoved it down my throat should not have relaxed my body. This could easily have been a trap, but it was the most comforting and tastiest trap ever. I was swallowing down creamy pasta when an explosion went off behind us. The others didn't move, only hugging their bowls closer to them. Do you guys know any Christmas songs? Kenji yelled over a guy screaming, begging for mercy, followed by his killer's maniacal laughter. Alex nodded, squeezing his eyes shut when another sharp cry rattled the night, blood staining the icy wind hitting me in the face. I continued eating pasta. Yeah, I know one. He started to sing a melody which would forever be stuck in my head. I never knew how the lyrics went though because Kenji stood up, pulled out his gun and shot Klee in the head. Alex kept singing the melody like he knew it was going to happen. No lyrics, I thought, staring wide-eyed at the cavern between Klee's brows. Just the melody. Before it stopped and Klee hit the ground, Alex was slowly standing up and reaching for Kenji, whose expression was flat, eyes vacant and wrong. He was stock still and not even shaking, his fingers perfectly cinched around the butt of his gun. I don't know what it was. Maybe Kenji was screwing with us the whole time, and he planned to kill us after the last supper type of meal. But I knew the truth. He was poisoned. Not just by Blitzen's original killers, but by a town who had fashioned him into a psychopath. I think both of us knew the moment Alex slashed the boy's throat and gently lowered him to the ground exactly what we needed to do. Daniel was right, and I guess my dad was too. I don't think he was Jesus, like his weird cult's rants, but I think my birth made him realize that I was poisoned too, and my children would be poisoned, and my children's children. Sudden movement behind me snapped me from my thoughts and I almost choked on my coke. Whipping around, I shot a startled-looking Alice Jarrett point-blank in the head. The crack of the gunshot had definitely revealed my location, but there was only three of us left. Alice's tactics were clever, using the crate of coke. I admit that I fell for it, but Alice didn't know that I was armed. I made sure to let other participants know that I had a single knife and nothing else, while keeping Kenji's gun stuck down my pants. When Alice dropped into the dirt, the crowd outside the barrier began a countdown. I could already see them, camera flashes behind the glass. 
I could imagine how nervous they all were awaiting the last one standing. There were three contestants left, Alex, Ramona, and me. 11.57, a clock face was illuminated on the barrier every hour displaying the time. December 25th was looming and so was my choice. The three of us had already made our decision. I would make it painless to not give them a warning. I could sense that the two of them were stalling. Alex was helping himself to diet soda, and Ramona was just vibing, stealing shiny things from dead contestants. In the town's eyes, we were minutes from killing each other, and the survivors saving them for another year. Ring the bell and grant Livingswood mercy. The words rattled in my skull. 1159. Save the town. But I was covered in Alyssa. Fractured pieces of Kenji's skull clung to my sweater. I was cold, tired. I could still hear their screams. Fear their blood caked all over me. I could see why Santa chose a traumatized kid to make this choice. Cruel but clever. Who in their right mind would save an already poisoned town? The seniors before us were hopeful of a better future, a chance that we could be forgiven. But that's not true. Blitzen wasn't just a reindeer but a part of Christmas. We were stupid to think that Santa would ever offer us mercy. Alex and Ramona stood by my side when the chance to ring the bell came and went. Outside, at the barrier, the town had erupted into chaos, trying to force themselves into the glass. Their wide, accusing eyes and snarls were the icing on the cake. Ready? Alex's blood-slicked hand entangled with mine. It was comfortable and I was at peace. Alex and Ramona wanted it to be fast, painless, and so I made it fast. I didn't give warning, twisting around and slicing Ramona's throat open and shooting Alex in the perfect place to secure zero pain. The town started screaming at me behind the barrier, urging me to ring the bell, that it still wasn't too late. Their fear made me scared too, but I didn't show it. Even when they threw things into the barrier, the mayor himself was at the front, his lips twisted into a furious yell, screaming at me to ring the bell. Instead, I gulped down soda. I could see my reflection on the surface of the barrier. I looked awful. I could barely see my face, splattered red, covering every inch of me, my hair a mop hanging in front of my eyes. But I was smiling. When jingling bells sounded from above, horrified cries erupted behind the barrier. I just smiled at Santa's looming shadow and his skin prickling oblivion creeping across an dirty pitch black sky. Tipping my head back, this darkness was impenetrable, swallowing up the sky above our town. His maniacal, bloodthirsty grin and tragic eyes. I dropped to my knees and raised my coat to Blitzen, only for cold, skeletal fingers to wrap around my neck and yank me back. Thank you. His voice thundered in my mind when the first snow of winter started to fall, lightly grazing my face. No, not snow. I blinked, coughing. Ash. The ground was white when I was being dragged through startling nothing. I could smell the stink of burning flesh and I risked to look back, but there was nothing to look back on. 
Several faces were pressed against the barrier trying to force themselves through, when tiny creatures with melted faces and pointy ears leapt onto them. There was an explosion of red splattering the glass. I turned back, thinking of my dead friends. They were at peace. Then what about me? Where was my peace? The shadow tugged harder on the back of my sweater and I stumbled. Come with me. I had no choice. Staggering into the dark, my own breast and every thought drowned out by jingling bells. I wish I could tell you that I too died with Livingswood, but I'm still here writing this now, aren't I? Currently, we're in Switzerland. We do a trial run with the sleigh before the real thing, just to make sure that everything is fine and the reindeers are good. I found a phone and I'm not being monitored. Anymore. There's a tracking device in my neck, but I don't think it can tell that I'm writing this. Unless it can. In that case, I'm a dead boy walking. And Jinx, the moody kid who orders me around, is MIA. I think he's checking on the naughty list, so I think that I'm good. Poppy is somewhere, probably smoking weed. She thinks that the big guy doesn't know. I can assure you that he does. Just like other naughty kids who tried to bear the sins of their town, we are stuck as Santa's little helpers. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. The holiday season is in full swing and HelloFresh can help take the stress off of dinner by delivering everything you need to cook up tasty meals right to your door, saving you tons of time. Each HelloFresh box is packed with farm-fresh ingredients and everything arrives pre-portioned, making it easier for you. Don't let recipe boredom strike because HelloFresh has more options than ever before. Dig into their biggest menu yet with over 45 dinner options to choose from weekly, and even more market add-on items that suit any lifestyle. My go-to meal recently has been the pub-style shepherd's pie. It's hearty and filling, which is perfect for the cold weather. To get started, go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreepsFree and use code MrCreepsFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while the subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash MrCreepsFree with code MrCreepsFree. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Santa was resurrected by the devil on Christmas Eve. It was my job to stop him. Written by Kyle Harrison I hate when stories start off with, once upon a time, it sounds mundane and trivial and frankly made up. So let me tell you about this one time on Christmas Eve when Santa himself was resurrected by the devil. It was a cold and blustery day down below. So windy, in fact, that my Aunt Lucy had decided to vacation in Barbados and let her nephew Wormwood handle the soul reckoning that day. Now she's done that before, no big deal. Wormwood can handle a few souls heading to purgatory or send them off to be ripped to shreds by Cerberus. He may have screws for brains, but he's a good pencil pusher. What made this a little different is that Christmas Eve was when all the souls that weren't properly accounted for from the previous year come up for grabs. 
Basically, Wormwood's job is to make sure that none of these dead people got sent here by accident, and then to feed the rest of the souls to the hungry demons that Lucy hardly pays attention to. It's a demon-eat-demon place down there. Wormwood was doing his job, rallying up numbers and getting the souls sorted when he came across one unanticipated snag. The soul that came up to be processed was that of an ethereal being. Let me pause and explain that. No, never mind, that will probably take too long. Uh, no, hang on, I probably should. Santa Claus, as I'm sure most of you already know, doesn't really exist. Except for that wiggle room where he does exist. Thanks to all the people in the world that keep insisting that he's a real deal thing. So because of that, the combined belief of the children in the world makes Santa a real thing. An immortal being that will be around till the end of time. There's just one snag about that. I killed Santa last year. It was kind of cool. You should hear that story from me if you haven't already, because the finer details make it extra cool. It goes a little bit like this. Previously on Fane the Fae Killer, King Extraordinaire, our hero was given a dangerous life-threatening assignment by Claus himself, and had to venture into the human world to find and capture one human child. After several harrowing adventures and an encounter with one extra feisty and dangerous child, Fane decided to take back the North Pole and used several city-leveling bombs to pulverize Santa into oblivion, saving both Christmas and the known universe. And that's exactly what happened, minus a few details that really aren't relevant. Except maybe that part where I lost all my magical powers and wound up as the guardian of that human kid. Uh, more on that later, let's go back to hell. Wormwood saw the ethereal soul of Santa Claus working its way through the grinder and immediately thought, gee, this must be a mistake. It was the first thought that he had had in almost 4,000 years, so I guess you can't blame him for not being a good one. He immediately shut down the machine and went to rescue the fat soul. What followed next, I can only give you secondhand information because I wasn't there to witness it. I haven't been to hell in a couple of years, but it wasn't pretty. Santa's ethereal soul rumbled and fidgeted and began to act sporadically, like a vomit bag that was going to explode. His angry spirit went everywhere, grabbing up dead bodies and reaching critical mass in mere seconds. And any demon that was unfortunate enough to be in the middle of that got roasted and toasted, with blood dripping from his fresh red coat. The jolly old elf was back in the land of the living, laughing like a madman and towering over Wormwood with the hate of a thousand years. But his hate wasn't directed toward Wormwood. In fact, he rewarded the idiot demon with a toy and asked for directions to the nearest elevator to the surface world. No, Santa had thoughts of revenge toward only one person in the entire world. You guessed it, yours truly. Meanwhile, still on Christmas Eve, I was finishing my shift as a mall security guard when my human child that I had adopted texted me, since that's a mouthful to say every time we'll simply call her Isabella. I was actually in the middle of buying her a last minute Christmas gift at the local Hot Topic when she asked me what we were doing for dinner. Or in her words, Yeah, are we eating leftover pizza again or what? I'm starving. As you can see, I raised her right ever since she ran away from home a few years ago. 
Since it was Christmas Eve, I knew that most of the mall food court would already be closed except for the food truck run by Jehovah's Witnesses because they didn't celebrate. While I'm usually against fundamentalist Christian high control groups, this couple makes the finest deli sandwiches on earth. Matt, the husband, was swiping through Instagram when I arrived and put in my usual order. One six-inch roast beef with some light ranch and yellow peppers and red onions. Light cheese because for some reason when I turned human, I also became lactose intolerant. Go figure. His wife Jessica started making the sandwich when behind us I felt the cold winds of the poles themselves begin to push their way through the food court. Honestly, I didn't think much of it at first. The place gets chillier than it should this time of year, and I have complained to management about it tons of times. Frank, they say using my human name. Your resume claims that you lived in the coldest place on earth, and you're telling me that you can't handle 70 degrees on a Friday. It would be too difficult explaining that when I lived in the North Pole that I had magic powers and honestly, I didn't like the cold that much back then either. So there I was feeling this strong cold north wind when I heard Mark scream like a little girl and I turned to see a massive hell portal opening up right next to the Baskin Robbins. It looked like one of those things from Minecraft, except instead of a piglin hopping out, I was shocked to see none other than jolly old Saint Nick. Except he wasn't jolly or old. More like pissed off surprisingly not dead Saint Nick. But that's a mouthful to say and I already had a bite of sandwich in my mouth when he dropped his magical bag of toys on the tile floor next to the ice cream stand. Santa Claus? I said completely shocked to see that he was somehow here and not way down in hell, tormenting for all eternity. There's no way that Santa, Santa isn't real. Jessica commented, crossing her arms skeptically. The Santa gave a belly laugh that shook the entire mall. <laughs> oh, I'm not real, am I? Well, how do you explain this? He shouted as he opened his bag and an army of zombie toy soldiers lined up to block my way. Jessica didn't seem impressed. I think you're a very troubled man that needs some good news. Here, let me share with you a link to our website. Santa and I traded looks and I gave him a nod. Then he mystically created a long sword and shoved it straight up her nostrils. Matt was still cowering behind the counter trying not to piss his pants as Jessica bled out like a stuck pig. I'm pretty real now, aren't I? Santa laughed. Sorry, mate, I just didn't want to hear another presentation. I told Matt with a shrug. I promise I'll never make fun of the holidays again. Please don't kill me. He shouted as he crawled away. I let him go. Poor bloke probably thinks it's the end of the world anyway, I told Santa. Oh, but it is the end of the world. For you, that is vain. I did my best to try and not be frightened. Here I was standing before a godlike being and the only thing that I had to defend myself with was a hoagie. A hoagie in my sharp mind. Thankfully, I knew that the old elf was in the brightest bulb, so I decided to try and trick him. Oh, I'm sorry, I think you might have the wrong person. I'm Frank. See, it says on my name badge. I said, showing it to him. Santa narrowed his steely gaze and grabbed the badge, looking at me in confusion. The directions that I got from the Easter Bunny were very specific. 
You said that you were working here under a human disguise. Santa commented. I did my best to keep it cool. The Easter Bunny had hated me for years. It's a long story. I shouldn't have been surprised that he was helping Santa out, but it still scared me. My next words could mean life or death. Okay, you must be thinking of another person because I'm 100% human. I paused and showed him the food in my mouth. What a fake human waste a perfectly good sub like this. Santa was tapping his feet trying to decide what to do, and then reluctantly passed my badge back to me. Uh, sorry for the confusion. Have a Merry Christmas, he said in disappointment. You too, a nice costume by the way. I said taking it and slowly weaving my way through his crowd of zombie toy soldiers. As I was almost at the escalator, my phone buzzed and I froze, realizing that I had left it right by where Santa was standing next to the food truck. He immediately grabbed it and switched on the speakerphone. Fane, what the hell is taking so long? Did you stop and get food and eat without me? Isabella asked. I laughed nervously as Santa's evil eyes blazed against me. Sorry, kitty, your precious Fane will not be home for Christmas. Santa cackled as he crushed my cell phone and then ordered his toy soldiers to charge. Immediately, I jumped on the slope of the escalator, sliding down to the bottom floor of the mall and broke into a mad dash for the parking garage. I could hear the swarm behind me, their nutcracker teeth chattering all throughout the mall as I tried to think of what I could do to stop this. Rounding the corner to the parking garage, I huffed and caught my breath, listening for the zombie toys. This is not how I wanted to be dashing through the snow, I shouted. It probably wasn't a good idea to alert them to my location, but I was mad. The chattering grew louder and I knew that they were almost on me, as I started running even faster to get away. I pulled my keys out and opened the back door to my Honda Civic to push aside my other gifts and rev the engine. The zombie toys were almost on me and I shut the doors and started to pull away their guts splattering across my windshield as I heard Santa getting closer. Dang it, I said as they bit my tire. I wasn't going anywhere fast, so I decided to try and book it on foot. The toy soldiers were soon accompanied by a very feral reindeer as I heard Santa laugh on I above me. He was riding in a skeletal sleigh and dropping bombs on the mall parking lot as I rushed to find an exit. I have to admit, I've never really been afraid for my life, even when I was stuck at the DMV that one time. But being pinned down by an army of undead dolls and knowing that they would likely take their time dismantling my body, it made me feel terrified. Santa took his flaming sword from Jessica's nostrils and pointed it toward me. Many last words, you pathetic excuse for a fae, he shouted. I hate to admit that I blubbered like an idiot, so let's embellish this part of the story and say that I went on a three-day tirade about the nature of food and evil, of the consequences of belief in the duality of man, and the endless cycle that we're all trapped in. Then once I had run out of things to say and the toy soldiers had started nibbling on my fingertips, Santa slammed the flaming sword down toward me and I died. Okay, not really. I was just checking to see if you were paying attention. I thought that I was going to die, but at the last minute, 
There was a blinding light from the east and a second flaming sword came down and blocked Santa Claus. I crawled backwards toward the exit, not believing my eyes as I saw that it was a golden winged seraph straight from heaven itself. And it was somebody that I knew. My ex-girlfriend. Lysidus, what the heck are you doing here? I shouted at her as she used all her angelic powers to hold back Santa. What does it look like I'm doing here, saving your skin, you nincompoop? I tried my best to ignore her stifling 18th century English and slowly rose to my feet. What in the heck is going on? I asked her. What part don't you get? Santa's coming to skin your hide or me saving it? Lysidus asked irritably. Honestly, both, I admitted. Look, I only have time to explain one thing, so let's go with what you need to do now. Fane, you have to get your powers back and take out all the evil in Santa's heart, or Christmas is doomed forever. Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Wait, my power is back? How do I do that? She was straining against the weight of Santa trying to get to me. He was strong, but thank God she was stronger. No, seriously, thank God. He's her personal trainer, and the dude that stole her from me. Prick. You need to find Tysander. He knows the way, she shouted to me. The sparks between the two swords looked like they were about to start a nuclear explosion. I knew what I had to do, but honestly I wasn't sure that I had the courage to do it. She told me to run and I knew that I was at least good at that, so I ran outside to the bus stop and told them to take me to my apartment complex. Lysidus had saved me some time to hide from Santa, but honestly, it wasn't very much. As I made my way to our little hole in the wall, I had a heavy decision to make. Run away from this and hope that Santa never found me, or try to get my powers back as a fey and take down the villainous elf. When I got to the apartment, I had made up my mind and then I saw Isabella standing there at the foyer, looking pissed because I had forgotten to grab her dinner. Why did you ignore my calls? You better not have gotten that stupid gift that you were trying to surprise me with. She told me as I hurried into the lobby. We need to get upstairs and lock all our doors and pack for a trip to Mexico. Or maybe Canada. Do you like clubbing seals? Isabella saw my strange pale expression as we got into the elevator, and immediately her attitude changed. Oh God, the college recruits found us, didn't they? Uh, worse than that, I'm afraid, I admitted to her. I told you to stop eating from that food truck. Those fundamentalists are relentless, she said worriedly. No, it's Santa Claus, and he's back from the dead. I exclaimed as the door opened and our nosy neighbor Gladys entered the elevator. Afternoon, Franklin. Izzy. Playing Dungeons and Dragons again, are we? She said with her nose up in the air. We said nothing until we got in the apartment and Isabella locked the door, studying my face to see if I was lying. You're serious about the Santa thing, but how was that possible? Didn't we kill him like two years ago? She asked. Did he get purchased by Disney or something? I sighed and nodded weakly, figuring that explanation was easier than anything that I could conjure up. As somehow Santa Claus returned...
Isabella ate a bite of a Lunchable as she paced our apartment. Oh, well, this seems like a simple enough solution. You just gotta kill him again, right? You're forgetting the parts where I'm human now. I need my fey magic to fight him properly, I told her. Well, can we buy it on eBay? She asked. I still have my parents' login. No, and it's too dangerous to go and get some anyway. Which is why we're going to be on the run and change our names and become Canadian citizens. Now start practicing your accent and love of NSYNC. I told her as I grabbed a bag from the closet and stuffed clothes into it. Nah, I think it makes more sense that we stop Santa for good. I mean, I tried the whole runaway thing, remember? It's cliche at this point. Isabella told me. Now Isabella, eh? That doesn't sound like you want it that way, eh? Cause I want it that way. That's Backstreet Boys, she pointed out. All boy bands look the same. Come on, start packing, I insisted. Fane, we can't outrun something like Santa Claus. He's like the champion of hide-and-seek, she said. I slumped on the bed, knowing that she was right. You really think that I should try to get my fey magic back? I asked. Sure, I mean, how hard could it be? Well, basically, I have to go find the Sandman and enter the Land of Dreams, both of which I've only ever heard rumors about, I told her. We get to meet Tom Sturridge. She squealed like the biggest fangirl ever. Unfortunately, no. This is the real Sandman, and he's definitely not as friendly as the TV version. I told her as I started to unpack. Huh, that's a little disappointing, Isabella admitted. May gets that a lot. I admitted as I grabbed a few key items and added, We better get going before Santa catches up. Instead of boring you with the details of how we found the Sandman, I think I'm just going to skip forward a few scenes in this story to how I entered the land of dreams. It involves pixie sand being injected into my veins and a head clamp that sends 30,000 volts of dream energy into my human body. Now Fane, keep in mind that when you enter the dream realm, there are a certain number of rules that you need to obey to stay out of harm's way, and Ty Sander said as he pet his raven. All gloomy goth cosmic beings have ravens. I'm good with ritual pastas. What are the rules? I asked. Tysander blinked at me. I mean, I don't know, mate. I thought you had like a print-off. Why would I have a print-off? You're the Sandman. It's not like I keep handbooks lined up and go take tours. He snapped back. Well, lovely. Well, how about focus on telling me what I have to do to get my powers back? You're gonna need to find your shadow self, the part that was taken from your body by the cursed Santa putting you all those years ago. Merge with your shadow self and convince the lonely nightmare to take you back across the street, to the land of waking, and you'll be scot-free as a fey again. Unless, of course, the other endless decide to hunt you down and destroy your dream soul. In which case, remember the number 42, Tysander remarked. Um, okay, can you write that down? Nope. I'm pretty sure some of that came from Neil Gaiman, so it's probably a bit more fancy than it should be. The Sandman said as he yawned and told Isabella to relax while we started. A few hours for us will be weeks for him. Do you really want to do that to yourself or him? The Sandman asked. 
Isabella had just finished popping popcorn. Not exactly how I wanted to spend Christmas, but it beats rewatching Seinfeld, she said, giving me the thumbs up. And remember, what is the plan if Santa shows up while I go full inception? Shoot him in the balls and run, Isabella said, patting the small Winchester rifle that Sandman had on him for some reason. Look, the guy's a bit nutty. I don't ask questions. I swallowed and I looked at the two of them, promising that I would return with the prize I sought. And then Ty Sander flipped the switch. I've been on acid trips before, but this takes the cake. You ever seen Inside Alter, Alice in Wonderland, the Burton version? This felt like that except I was watching myself walk along this long corridor of winter globes. Each little snow globe had a different version of It's a Wonderful Life playing. At first, I thought maybe the movie really did have that many adaptions, and then I remembered suddenly where I was. The dreamlands are like an interconnected highway of goob. You can be standing in a museum one second and then suddenly whisked away to a big open field the next. None of it made sense, and I honestly wasn't sure if I was going to be able to find the nightmare that I wanted to, given how crazy the place is. I think the back rooms except with candy canes. I could hear jingles as I stepped forward into the next area, a strange snow-covered jungle that reminded me of the North Pole about 10,000 years ago. The jingling got louder and I found myself drawn to a large fir tree where a naked Krampus was dangling upside down and singling the 12 days of Christmas. Yes, I said singling. It's like jingling and singing combined. Granny Krampus, what are you doing here? The strange vision looked at me and smiled empathetically, pointing towards a row of elves that were chanting for blood. Santa Claus is going to amass an army and destroy Christmas fane, and it's all your fault. Hold on a minute now, you're the one that told me to kill him, I told them. Krampus was repeating the same words over and over as the elves began to attack themselves with the sharp end of the candy canes. Their blood mixed together and formed what looked like a huge vanity mirror. If I wasn't already convinced that Burton was directing this dream world, then I definitely was now. The mirror had a different version of myself. He looked buff and strong. The me that maybe I had always wanted to become. Fane, the fearsome Fae. But he also had dark eyes, a dark smile that I'm pretty sure that he was a vegan. It was a vibe that I got from him. Vegans go to a special circle of hell right next to Karen's. The reflection spoke. Do you know who I am? It asked in my voice. I'm hoping you're my shadow self so I can get the heck out of here, I said to it. The mere side. Talk about deflating. I was hoping for a bit of mystical mystery here while you struggled with feelings of existentialism and what could have been the life you never had. Can we skip to the part where you give me my powers back? I asked. Oh, you still haven't learned. The powers are within you all along. The reflection cackled. I did my best to not roll my eyes in frustration. God dang it. Why did there have to be a moral to the story? I guess we could just battle it out and you pretend you ripped the powers from my cold dead hands. My reflection suggested. Oh, that would be so much better. Thank you. Two lightsabers appeared, one for each of us. The duel of the fates begins to play. 
My shadow pushed me down a flight of stairs and stabbed me straight into the chest. Don't you see you were doomed to fail all along? I blocked his next attack and rolled over toward a crystal lake that suddenly appeared. It was obvious from the moment that we started battling the dream was collapsing. I could hear voices above. It sounded like Isabella screaming. You hear that? The pathetic human you care about so much is in danger. Don't you want to wake up and rescue her? The shadow taunted. We fought across the lake. Strange Santa-looking sharks swimming under the ice as we pushed toward the edge. I didn't actually know how I had such good swordplay. I only played in theater once when I was young. It was back in the 13th century and it was a mild hit. Romeo and Juliet or something. Very progressive. My shadow kicked me across the lake toward a howling forest of fire monkeys. They were eating and stripping my flesh as I heard Isabella scream louder. I can't wake, not yet. I have to get my powers back. I shouted to the sky and it cracked like glass. Little mushrooms from a popular video game series that I can't specify or I'll get a copyright strike against me rained down. I grabbed one and ate it and got 10 feet tall. My shadow did the same, morphing into this mecha Gundam robot. We held our blades against each other as a storm shook the entire dream. I will never let you destroy me, I'm too powerful. The shadow snarled. I was losing. I could feel my feet sinking into the quagmire. Hey, giggity. My body was dissolving. I was going to wake up if I could not defeat this nightmare. I closed my eyes and pushed as hard as I could. Somehow I could keep going. I pinned the shadow down finally and locked eyes with it. I'm not destroying you, idiot. We are merging into a single soul. The reflection seemed shocked and suddenly the battle was over. He relaxed and stepped up, relinquishing his sword as the dream kept collapsing around us. The music was swelling and getting louder as I felt his power going into my body. Like I said all along, Fane, the power was inside you this whole time. The reflection said as it faded away. My whole body burst like a solar flare on my butt from a buffet at Taco Bell. I screamed and cried and shook as the dream dissolved. It felt like I was hurtling toward the surface. As I came up for air, I heard the screams turn to silence and I feared the worst. Had Santa already found us? I stood in darkness for a while, waiting for the waking world to return. When it did, I realized that the room that I was in was now sealed up. I couldn't find Tysander or Isabella. I took the headgear off and shouted their names but for no response. And then I saw a trail of sparkly elf blood. The following the trail led me to a secret door. The room itself had been hidden away as an emergency mechanism. And when I opened it, I saw the Winchester that my human daughter had used for protection was now wrapped a snug around Tysander like a snake coil. I hurried to his side, using my newfound face strength to push it apart and free him. The Sandman gave me an apologetic shrug. Isabella insisted that I needed to make sure you were protected. But honestly, I think Claus had other plans anyway. He said, pointing toward a small chalkboard on the right wall. Pinned to the board were elves, their innards sprawled out and designed to write a message from the fat man himself. It read, To whom it may concern, 
namely Fane the Fae. So, I just found out that you went into the dreamlands and wanted to get your powers back. Bold of you. Perhaps this means that you want to face me at my full strength. In case you weren't already aware, now that it is Christmas Day, I'm back to my old self and can take anyone down. Especially you. I could have killed you a few times already, but it's more fun to see you suffer. For that reason, when I came here and I saw you strapped to that silly sand machine, and I heard Ty say that you could be trapped in the dreamlands forever if I shut it down, I thought to myself, nah, that's too easy. I want to kill you myself. But I want it to be slow and painful and full of belly laughs. Yeah, I know how to belly laugh. It's a trademark. So I took your human ward. It wasn't easy. She put up quite a fight. But now that I have her, and if you want to save your little damsel in distress, then you'll have to come to the North Pole. And that's where all of this went wrong, and that's where this will all come to an end again. But this time, you will be the one to go to hell. Except there's no coming back from you. So come, Fane, let's have a Christmas together one last time. Santa Claus. Oh, and there is a smaller note written in what looked like leftover pixie dust. Which, by the way, is the snot of pixies, and it said, P.S. Scan this QR code for 25% off your Grubhub order and to indicate you'll be at the fight on Christmas Day. Uh, remember, if you don't come, I'll destroy your human child instead. I can't believe this, I said as I examined the scan code. I know, it's an amazing coupon. You better use it before it expires, Ty Sanders said excitedly. I rubbed my eyes tiredly and gave the Sandman a dirty look. Well, it looks like I will need to find a way back up north, and I have less than 24 hours to get there and to save Isabella. The stakes couldn't be higher. I muttered as I tried to think of how I could defeat that fatso. I know, and you heard how his powers are now at full strength. You might not have the power to stop him, Fane. At least not alone anymore, he said. Yeah, I will need help, I realized. Hey, don't look at me, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Ty Sanders said, waving his hands up defensively. I squinted my eyes and looked over at his leftover bottles of pixie snot. You can send messages to people in their dreams, right? Yeah, more or less. It's a bit complicated in the way it works. I don't care. I need you to send a message to someone and to do it now. Time is wasting. Somewhere a Christmas bell chimed and it sent a chill down my spine. Already it was an hour past midnight on this holiday horror. I had to get to the North Pole. I closed my eyes and focused on the strength that I had gotten from the dreams, sprouting wings that would make Tinkerbell jealous, and giving Tysander the message I needed forwarded, and paying the shipping and handling fees I made for the wintry skies. Today, one way or another, Christmas would change forever. As I got closer to the North Pole, I saw a northern light that streamed toward me like a shooting star. I knew immediately it was my ex and that my message into her dream had worked. Lysidas, you came for me, I said as I saw her soft and beautiful eyes. Oh, don't fool yourself, Fane. Your dream told me that a child was in danger and if I can save this human child... I might finally be promoted to Chief Seraph's secretary, she said as she glanced at my fairy wings. 
I never really thought you were that type of fae, she commented. There's a lot about me that you don't know, I said dryly. Suddenly the air got warm and both of us slowed down in our flight. Below the white tundra was suddenly cracking and melting into a boiling pot of burning lava. The ground itself was scorching into a black smoldering crater. Dead trees and debris covered the battlefield. Krampus and the elves must have detected that Santa was coming and this is the result. I paused and looked up toward the twisting tower where Santa's workshop once stood. It looked like his Christmas magic had transformed it into the eye of Sauron. A quick, get to the ground before that thing finds us, I shouted. The blazing lights of the tower seemed to almost hear us, and they focused in on her wings. A long laser of rainbow fire shot out, burning her and causing my ex to scream as she began to fall. I narrowed my wings and shot down like a bullet to catch her, grabbing at her hand and cradling her toward me as we both crashed near a large bridge that once covered an icy river. Now, there were only reindeer carcasses and melted snowmen. A Christmas nightmare, really. Elisidus gave me thanks and stood up, checking her wing that had been burned. Uh, looks like we'll have to go on foot from here, she said. As long as we can keep him distracted, I think that we can get inside. There's only one giant burning eye, so one of us has to be a scapegoat. I told her as I folded up my wings and tried to sense where my adoptive human child was. Isabella is strapped to a tree near to the central plaza. Santa is trying to emulate what happened last year, I realized. I'll go south and unleash the captured reindeer. They should be loyal to Krampus now. You sneak in from the west, Lysidus told me. It wasn't much of a plan, but it was all that we had and time was running short. There were only six hours left before Christmas came to an end, and as if to emphasize the danger, I saw that Santa had made a huge neon countdown clock that screamed how little time was left to save Isabella. Elisidus kept a watch over the roaming security eyeball in the sky and then gave me the signal by running across the field like a little chihuahua. It was kind of cute to be honest. As the searing Christmas eye tried to kill her, I snuck toward the elf quarters of the citadel. It smelled putrid, like a thousand reindeers had taken a crap all at once. I noticed many of the worker elves were locked up and already starved to the point where their ribs looked like string cheese. How would Santa have done all this in a single day, I whispered. Isn't it obvious, nephew? A weak voice said near the end of the cages. It was Granny Krampus and they were also chained up like a wild animal. That fatso had help. I was thinking this day might come, but to have it be now during the holiday rush, it's just not right. Santa needs to be stopped, Krampus explained. I tapped the blade next to me and smiled. Well, that's what I'm here for. Where does he sit? I asked. Santa's waiting for you in the throne room. Be cautious, Fane. There are traps everywhere, I said. Can you help me to save Isabella? I asked as I unchained the goat creature. Sure, just give me the word and we'll come storming in, Grandpa said. I whispered the code that I would use and then moved to the next room, feeling a renewed vigor in my body. I could really do this. I was going to stop Santa. But what Krampus said troubled me. Santa had help, but from who? Was it that rabbit again and his colored eggs? 
The very thought made me want to puke. I needed to find answers, otherwise this Christmas wouldn't be jolly and bright for anyone. Carefully, I moved to the central square. I could hear Santa making a belly laugh. The time was almost up. He was probably expecting that I would try to sneak in, save Isabella, and escape. What he didn't expect was that I'm not the same fae that he once knew. Santa Claus, I've come to bargain. I shouted as I entered the arena. I spotted my human child, a chain to the tree monster that would soon sprout to life and gave her a soft smile of reassurance. She looked more pissed off than worried. Hey, Fane, I just found out you got that stupid cheapo gift from Hot Topic, just like I explicitly said not to, she muttered. Can we discuss this maybe another time? I said as Santa got off his throne of ice. Well, 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 I was wondering when you would show up. So you're ready to get this over with, nephew? Going toe-to-toe. I wanted to give you a chance for us to stop this and make things right. The real Santa is not a monster and wouldn't have done this to the North Pole or all the elves. This is your family. This revenge nonsense has gone too far. I told him as I took out my blade. Take this weapon and pierce your blubber butt with it so that we can all have a good Christmas again. I shouted. Santa stroked his beard thoughtfully as fresh ash and snow began to fall. And then he walked toward me and lowered his fat self to take the blade. I gave it to him willingly. And then he slashed it across my chest and shoved me backwards, my whole body writhing with pain as I hit a stack of wrapped presents. Well, I was a goody-goody for thousands of years and I'm starting to enjoy being evil. I think I will decline your offer and turn this Christmas into the naughtiest yet. I wiped the blood off my lips and stood up, turning toward the auditorium. Fine, have it your way. May all your Christmases be as dark as your heart. Happy holidays and screw you, I shouted out. At the same time, elves and reindeer led by Krampus came pouring in to attack Santa. The unexpected attack surprised him, and I rushed for the blade as he tried to ward off wave after wave. This is treason, betrayal. I am Christmas, I am Santa. From above, I saw Lysidus also took the cue and dropped several snow bombs at the fat man. Krampus was almost where Isabella was located and grabbed at her chains to free her. We were so close. And then we heard the rumbling of the tree. It was moving and getting ready to devour her alive. Don't you see that my role is to make sure Christmas is on schedule? This wickedness is necessary for a bright and brilliant Christmas day. Santa shouted as he cut down more elves. Their bodies were slain around his red suit, like lilies in a field. I grabbed at the blade and pulled it from his hands, looking to see if Isabella was safe. For a second, I panicked, unable to find her. And in that instant, Santa pinned me down with the blade. You think you can purge the darkness from me, boy? There's nothing left. I'm a king of sinful sots. My brain is full of spiders. I'm as charming as an eel. I have nothing left except to destroy you, Fane. Then I will be the crooked, jerky jockey that everybody despises. He raised the blade high to stake me like a vampire. But then from behind, before he could slam it down, I saw a small heroine grab at the handle, forcing him to be distracted. Isabella, 
The blade got caught in Santa's beard and Isabella swung around a ram in his throat. I got three words for you, Claus. Stank. She jammed the blade in a little. Stank. She jammed it in a little further. Stunk. As she finished the limerick, all kinds of things happened at once. Santa began to flail on the ground, all the anger and rage hurtling into the sky to form a big angry cloud. Like a cranky old man that couldn't be bothered, the bitterness in his heart went straight toward the monster tree. The two struck and an earthquake happened. Blinding light covered the Christmas square and the bell for the end of the night came. It was time for Santa to leave and deliver toys, if it had been on schedule. Instead, all of us looked on in awe and confusion. His body turned to pure snow. The square got silent. Is that it? Did we win? An elf asked. A few stray snowflakes began to fall and then the typical holiday tunes began to play. They fell straight on the fat statue and I saw Santa slowly returning to life. Except now he had a soft smile in his face, a jolly grin. He belly laughed and I actually felt happiness in my soul. Ho ho ho, what in blazes is going on around here? I feel like I just had a very bad acid trip. And that about sums it up. My ex-angel said as she approached Claus and checked his wounds where the sword had dislodged itself. It looks like you are now a benevolent entity, just the way that you were meant to be, she said excitedly. The entire square cheered and chanted my name. Fane, my boy, you really are a legend having saved Christmas twice. That's more than most holiday specials can say. You deserve a reward. Santa said as he pointed to his magical gift bag. Name the item and it'll be yours. I turned to everyone excitedly, not sure what to even ask for, but then I knew. Isabella's the one that deserves a gift. She's the real hero here, and I kind of messed up on her initial gift anyway. I said offering the magical bag to her. How does that work anyway? Does my arm get chewed off when I reach in? She asked, peering into the bottomless bag. Wish for what you want the most, reach in and grab it. Batteries not included, Krampus told her. Isabella stuck her tongue out to think and then did just as we had instructed, pulling out an awesome grunge t-shirt from Spencer's. Oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, you really are a fine young lady, Santa said as he climbed into a sleigh. It was almost crazy to imagine the holidays were now safe again and we could go home. I saw Isabella look a little worried though. I don't know if going back to human life is a good idea now that you have real magical powers. Our rental agreement doesn't cover that, she pointed out. And plus, we don't know what happened to Santa's cohort. That rascally rabbit, Krampus mentioned. I mentally cussed and realized that the Easter Bunny had disappeared before anybody could find out what his goal was and then turned to Santa and asked if Isabella and I could stay here. We can earn a living by keeping the tree fed and giving it some bad kids to eat. The kinds that are bullies and punks, Isabella told him. Santa laughed again. I think you'll find its appetite has changed since I had a turn of heart. But you can remain here at the North Pole all you want. 
I'm sure we need a few more bodyguards to protect our elf treasures and feed the reindeer and train the soldier penguins, he said. It sounds like a Christmas ending, but wait, there's more. Lysidas got that cushy job upstairs and even agreed to be my friend again, possibly for a future new relationship. And Isabella managed to skip her classes and graduate from middle school early. So she is now helping Krampus to create a more kid-friendly website for the North Pole. One for the 21st century, she says. We all had Christmas dinner that night in hell, and Wormwood even showed up to apologize and cut the turkey. He looked like a mangled mess, but honestly, we love his goofy butt anyway. At the last minute, Lucy returned from her holiday trip and saw all of us reviewing slides from the escapade that I had in the dream world. Don't tell me you had a Christmas nightmare without me, she asked in disappointment. Isabella waved the DVD copy up excitedly. We got it on Blu-ray for you. Better watch out, Fane, or she'll franchise you, Lysidus told me. I gave her a hug and ate my hoagie, still with no cheese. I guess even crazy Christmas acid trips can't cure lactose intolerance. This show is also sponsored by BetterHelp. During the holiday season, a lot of stress can be placed on trying to find the perfect gift for your loved ones. But through all of that, don't forget about getting a gift for yourself. So, whether it might be by starting therapy or going easier on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. With BetterHelp, your counselor is available 24-7 via messaging and for scheduled weekly video or phone sessions. It lets you skip the awkward waiting room experience that you would get in in-person therapy. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MrCreeps today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MrCreeps. I found a body deep in the Siberian tundra. It was holding a journal, written by A.K. Cullerden. As of the 23rd of October, 2023, I'm stationed way out in the Northeast Siberian tundra. We've got these little caravan type things to live in for a couple weeks that we're staying. Why am I out here? Work. There's no other reason to be out this far, not for any man. Thus it came as a shock finding a dead body all the way out in the literal middle of nowhere, hundreds of miles from civilization. I see no feasible explanation as to how this man got out here. I'm part of a team assigned to a geological survey. Simply put, I'm here to analyze soil. Yeah, it's exhilarating. Anyway, that's beside the point. I'm not here to detail my scintillating career. I found the body on the second day on a slope out westwards. The cold had set him into a statue, inevitably, but it looked like he had died crawling on all fours. Something seemed off about the way that he was posed, which I quickly realized was due to him resting on two legs and one arm. 
The corpse still had all its limbs. It's just that the left arm was pulled up into the chest, and the hand attached was clasped tightly around a book. A journal, to be exact. Naturally, I read a fair few pages before having the idea to write this. Writing's not something that I frequent, and it doesn't come easy to me, so you'll forgive me if my tone leans towards being clinical. I'm a dirt analyst, give me a break. Anyway, I thought the journal might shed some light on how this guy wound up all the way out here in this barren place. That said, its contents are strange to say the least, and I'm not closer to an answer as I was when I first discovered the body. I don't know what to make of the journal's contents, but I'm hoping this is just a sick joke, or some monumental misunderstanding. The way that it's written seems literary in nature, although as I found out later on there may be a good reason for that. I'm going to transcribe the first few pages below. I'll start with the only page with a bookmark. That is, if you could call an old shred of fabric a bookmark. Anyway, here it is. Do you think we're dead? I gave Eleanor a perplexed look. I can see your breath and we're talking right now, so... No, no, she muttered, shivering in the keening wind. Not here, no sense in asking that here. I mean out there. I stared out past the dark sea, reaching to the horizon and likely further still than I could ever conceive of. They say that hell is hot. As I said on the ramshackle heights that we fight every day to maintain, the cold clawing at my skin, I truly wish it was. My mother used to say, as long as you tried. Those five words hammered strength into my psyche. They once gave meaning in battling hardships and misery. Now, well that's a dangerous epithet. You're free to try if so inclined. Just know that none of us will even try to save you when your belly is sliced open and your guts slurped by the creatures that dog this place. We've had our fill of brazen souls out here. They serve to be torn apart in our place. I suppose that it's something to be grateful for. The braver you are, the quicker that you'll learn. Bravery is as insubstantial as death in this place. I should backtrack. I'm an extremophile, always have been. After the first time that adrenaline rush flooded my veins, I was hooked. Water sports, base jumping, spelunking, anything you can name, it's likely under my belt. The one activity that I found myself coming back to was mountaineering. Ever since my dad took me up Mount Snowden, there's been an inscrutable urge to summit something higher, something steeper and harsher. This leads me to my most recent trip, summiting Monte Rosa's tallest peak, the Dufer Spitz. My climbing partner and good friend Rob climbed it in 2018. He shared plans of a second summit so I took him up on the offer. I say climbing partner but with my skill level I really mean guide. Rob's expertise blows mine out of the water. Nothing much of interest happened on the drive, long boring and standard overall. When we arrived, the parking lot serving as our starting point was empty and quiet, dead still. There was an air of unease lingering around us, around me at least. If Rob felt it, he didn't show it, 
but it was there and I should have taken it as a warning. That's retrospection for you. Looking up at Monte Rosa made everything seem so insignificant. Its monster of a rock face stood mighty and gazed out across the landscape. Ants beholden to a molehill in its dominance. God help any who climb it. Instead, we planned around the Marinelli Colour, a steep and snow-laden gully. We triple-checked our mandatory gear, ice picks, crampons, ropes, etc., all present. Clear and cold mornings were forecast for the ensuing week. Perfect climbing conditions. Rob's meticulous planning was impressive to say the least. I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little envious. The mountain hut alone was a four-hour climb, though the terrain was forgiving. Hard-packed snow crackled below my crampons. A reassuring sound. Inside was cozy. The walls were insulated well and the wood stove was stocked with more than enough firewood. Yet even as the fire roared, a chill crawled on my back. Just like the parking lot, we were alone. And a nagging intuition in the back of my mind said that it may not be coincidental. Sure you're ready for tomorrow, mate, Rob said, glancing over at me from the counter. Why, I mean, yeah, yep, I'm in good hands coming with you. Look, once we're up into the Kalur, we aren't turning back, so there's no shame in having second thoughts. Oh, no, it's not that, it's, I mean, yeah, I could come back another time, but who knows how long that I would have to wait. Life's hectic, you know. Might be years past till I can try again. Just making sure, nerves are a dangerous beast up there. As long as you listen to me, you'll be fine, but remember, don't panic. If you're feeling anxious, remind yourself that getting upset won't help your situation. Heat from the waning coals coddled my body. Only embers flickered by the time that I began to nod off into a deep and dreamless sleep. We set off at 8am after having oatmeal and berries. The first few hours ended up being a tough yomp along the snowfield skirting around towards the Kalur. Azura sky gazed down through wispy high cirrus. We were about a mile from the gully when light snowfall started up. It wasn't hugely surprising being in a mountain and all, but the sky remained clear. If anything, it had grown clearer over the past hour, and still the snow fell regardless. It was such a bizarre sight that I worried I might be getting altitude sickness. As icy pinpricks pelted my skin, the reality of the situation dawned on me. Visibility was dropping by the minute and within ten, I could scarcely see Rob twenty feet ahead. And then he was gone. I don't mean his silhouette blood away into the whiteout. I mean even his footprints were entirely covered over. I called out to him in a panic, cupping my hands together in a futile attempt to pierce the howling gale. Hoping to catch sight of Rob, I plodded forward another hundred or so yards. Nothing. My next actions I still ruminate over today, forcing me to curse my own cowardice. Even if I was the one who had disappeared, I didn't know that at the time. Without Rob to guide me, I thought that I was surely going to die and so I turned back. Following the compass, I made a steady descent, hoping to get back to the hut faster than we had come up. The fresh dusting of snow made frantic steps a danger and I slipped several times, 
After an hour, my view was unchanged, pure whiteness. In my retreat, I had somehow failed to notice a crucial detail. I wasn't going downhill. It seemed like I was in a flat snowfield, but when I turned to full 360 to get my bearings, I found that I was actually facing a gentle incline. A fresh wave of terror crashed down in my mind. I glanced down at the compass and to my horror, saw its needle replaced by a listless spinning blur. I tried my best. Mom would have been proud, but the cold wore me down, the snow merciless as it pelted me. My footsteps grew closer and closer together until there were no footsteps at all. I crouched on one knee. I wasn't shivering anymore. Well, I did feel pretty warm. Hot, actually. I went to unzip my coat when a stark patch of lime caught my attention. An abandoned tent. Long left to endure the elements. It looked old. My dully mind didn't catch the oddity that it wasn't already buried by snow. Our tent was in Rob's pack, and with him out of the picture this was my only chance at survival. There were a few small tears in the canvas, but the tent sufficed in its primary purpose. Still, I had no means of warming myself up. Bundled tight in my sleeping bag, I felt the weight of exhaustion settle, and no sooner did my eyelids droop and my eyes roll back. The fact that I awoke at all filled me with a sense of relief. Brain still groggy, I sat up and observed the tent's interior. It had fared well in the figurative flashbang of a snowstorm. Something was different. The small tears only looked out onto white, but all was quiet. Never has there been a silent blizzard. Only when a cold shock hit my foot did I notice the mounds of melting slush on the floor directly beneath each rip in the tent. I was snowed in. Adrenaline flooded my veins and sent my thoughts into hyperspeed. How long had I been buried? How much oxygen was left in the tent? How deep was I? Don't panic. Freaking out won't help you. I took a deep, controlled breath and crawled over to the zipper, hesitating before tugging it open in one swift motion. White fluff poured into the tent and, in a transitory state between dread and understanding, I scrabbled backwards in fear of an icy casket. My mind cleared. Logically, if the snow was that powdery, I couldn't be down very deep. But still, the tent sagged, its backbone long since snapped. I dragged myself out and pushed my way through the dampening snow, lugging the pack with all my equipment behind me. With the gap collapsing in on itself behind me, I planted my boots in the snow and stood. I wasn't on Monte Rosa. I wasn't in the Alps. I wasn't even on a mountain at all. That's as much as I feel like transcribing tonight. My schedule's now what you would call leisurely and I need to rest up for all the hiking that I have lined up. I'll post the next section tomorrow evening, when I have some time alone with my laptop. Until then, stay safe, and well away from the cold. Hello again, I've decided to continue these logs. My team's excursion will last another 8 odd days so I'm under no obligation toward regular updates. I'll record these in what time I can get and post them once I'm back and connected to the internet. 
I won't drag. Here's the father one from last time. Standing near the bottom of a sort of half-cone slope, the horizon wide expanse of dark water was the first hint that I was somewhere else entirely. I could tell the ocean was a ways down, but only after shuffling down to the edge did I catch a glimpse of the precipice. A rugged ice face plummeting some 400 feet. A vertigo struck instantly, knocking me onto my butt, hands splayed like a starfish. Something sticking up near the edge caught my eye. It resembled the curved rails of a pool ladder. If said ladder was poorly made and rickety, with coarse gray rope tied to each side, grain fibers sequestered by an equally ashen backdrop. A tiny ray of hope beamed somewhere deep inside of me. Maybe somebody was here. I crawled through the powder and gripped the steel bars. My gloves did nothing against the exorable chill of wind-beaten metal. Still, a desperate curiosity willed my head and shoulders to lean over the precipice. Fixed into the mottled ice, a vertical tower of crude material swayed in the ever-present winds. It reminded me of a shanty town with its hastily fastened planks and battered metal sheeting. For the life of me, I couldn't fathom what reason any sane person would have to build such a thing. But then again, I had yet to find anything in this place that I could fathom. Hello, I called out. The first words out of my mouth since waking up were hoarse and weak, tumbling pathetically down the mismatched scaffolding. There was an immediate response from somewhere below. I couldn't see anyone but there were multiple voices bleeding together into a garbled slur. Relief warped into regret as I remained hunched, frozen as if I were some frost-caked gargoyle on a forgotten castle. Though my voice barely cut through the winds, I regretted opening my mouth. I didn't quite know why. The frantic shuddering of the platforms as somebody clambered up to meet me instilled a deep and imminent foreboding. I somehow hadn't realized before, but the ropes tied around the bars that I grabbed onto were actually those of a rope ladder. They whipped into the cliffside, heralding the arrival of the figure who had just pushed their way out from under a rotten blue tarp. A disheveled and wild-eyed man pulled his way up the wooden rungs, patchy bundle of matted hair swinging across his face. When he saw me, he paused, wired eyes suddenly morphing into something rabid, before continuing up the ladder with fervor. As if he had dislocated his jaw, dropped wide open and flopped around on its hinges. I didn't know what the expression meant, but suffice to say I was horrified. Those eyes, they betrayed hunger. I flopped onto my back and fumbled with the zipper on my bag, tearing out an ice pack and stealing myself. Two sets of blackening fingers curled over the rim before me, followed by this bestial vestige of a human climbing up onto the snow in all his wiry might. Hey, what are you doing there, lad? I chuckled with transparent unease. He almost looked surprised after I spoke, as if language was a foreign concept to him. He sucked air in through his teeth with a hiss. Cold, cold, so hungry, you warm, fresh, he spat in a gravelly voice. I backed up, raising the ice pick clutched tight in both hands. 
The man went a few uncoordinated steps before lunging out of nowhere and diving on top of me. I yelped in fear of falling backwards and raising the pick in defense. The spittle sprayed from yellow teeth, gnashing inches from my face. Acting swiftly, I rammed the blunt handle of a pick into his throat, causing him to recoil. Only seconds later, he persisted with all this rage, seeming to shrug off the blow as though it were an insect bite. In the scuffle, he managed to grab my right arm, and he sunk his teeth into my wrist. I screamed and let go of the pick with my right. Instinctively, I swung it in my left, the sharp end sailing true and embedding directly into the side of his neck. Vicious blood exploded over my face as I wrenched the pick back towards me, tearing the front of his throat open in a ragged gash. The man shot up straight in response, stumbling uncontrollably back to the edge and dropping limply into the open air. And despite my close call, something else disturbed me. The blood that had poured out onto me was cold. I don't mean lukewarm, cold if not freezing. No steam rose into the air as one might expect. It just curdled and froze on my clothing. With no other choice, I crept back to the rope ladder and looked down. A ratty woman had just climbed up into view and paused after seeing the man's body supine on the platform. Oh, come on, again, Kurt. What she said took me aback, but the bubbling laugh from Kurt was the kicker. Throat practically non-existent, he was alive and laughing. Hey, I'm sorry about him. You can come down, it's safe. I almost joined Kurt in his hysteria. It was such an absurd proposition. Safe? You're dangling off the edge of a sheer cliff. Now let me rephrase. Safer. Trust me, you don't want to spend another minute up there. What? Nah, you're a lunatic. Do as you like, but I won't be on that platform when it collapses. I'm out of here. Are you? Are you really? Take a look around. Where in the name of God do you think you are right now? I have no idea, but even if my chances are one in a million at getting home, I would rather die out there than stay here. Oh, me too, traveler. Me too. With that, the conversation was over and the woman tended to Kurt. I refused to witness any more of this madness and I stormed off back up the slope that I had come down from. After a few steady paces, I stopped dead on my tracks. Something was off. Imperceptible movement in the snowfield, distant thuds growing nearer. I squinted to make anything out, but I didn't need to. There, near the buried tent that I had crawled out of, the falling snow outlined in absence. Empty air. A strong gust flung pale dusting off the ground to form a haze, and in it, the shape was clear. I couldn't tell you what it was, only what it resembled. Long, snaking, and of simply vast size. It coiled through the haze the way an air bubble darts through water. Two, maybe three, sparsely spaced legs jabbed at the ground, leaving clear imprints of whatever this thing was. A scythe-like mandible sliced through the air towards me. It wasn't a hallucination. I could hear its sharp limbs clacking, feel its heavy steps through the ground. So I went back on my words and scampered back down to the ladder. Vertigo or not, I couldn't stand up against whatever that thing was. 
The girl was still tending to the man whose throat that I had torn out and shot a glance over to me. Told you, she said with a smirk. Oh, what was that? I couldn't see it while I could, but... Oh, it's fine, they won't come down here. I sank to the floor, if it could even be called that, and a sudden wave of despair overtook me. I hadn't the first clue where I was. Something deep in the recesses of my mind doubted that I was even on earth anymore. I'm Eleanor, by the way. Shaking, I looked over to her with a grimace, and then promptly winced from the pain of freezing wind whistling through my teeth. Mine's Tony. Why, how are you so nonchalant right now? How long have you been here in this place? How long? Oh, you poor baby, time doesn't have a say anymore. Not for me. It's not if if clocks work here, even if I wanted to know the time. A day could be months, years, and a night could be five minutes or vice versa. There's not many things a man can do when faced with impossibility. Do you deny to enkindle self-detriment or accept and give up so easily? A question of a hopeless fight versus hopeless submission. Look, how about you come down with us, get some shelter? I know it's not optimal, but believe me when I say it's a paradise to living up here. Before, I had Rob to guide me. Whether he's still in the world that I knew or he's here somewhere, I don't know. I should hope that he made it out. But the coward in me also hopes to see him in this cursed place. To let him take the lead. And the same coward in me chose to stay with Eleanor, Kurt, and the rest. The rope ladder ran down through every level. A group of us sat on a nine-foot square base of cobbled ply and sheet metal, enclosed by flapping rolls of sun-bleached canvas and tarp, a room by some sliver of a margin. At the time, there were six of us. A paler, sharp-faced man with a vaguely Slavic-tinged accent introduced himself as Alexei and spoke on behalf of Kurt. You see, friend of the hunger... It breaks down the strongest and the weakest man all the same. To eat anything substantial is rare, let alone something warm. Of the remaining two were Nia, a tan woman whose dappled skin displayed a mild vitiligo, and an older gentleman bearing several tight pink scars over his hands. The same for his face as well, what could be seen of it past a graying beard. He doesn't remember his name, but everybody calls him Yago or Santiago, something Hemingway. Never read his works myself, but as far as wind-beaten fishermen go, Iago certainly looks the part. It took a while of idle chatter for me to finally come around to the question seeping through my thoughts. So, how do you survive here? Eight words were all it took to derail the conversation and have them exchanged pitied glances. It ain't a matter of surviving, son. Yago rasped. It's a choice between lesser evils. I was exasperated. What does that even mean, you old? Yago's sunken eyes toppled my will and I trailed off. He huffed, more with fatigue than frustration, as if issuing a sentiment that he had had to repeat more times than he could remember. Try as you might, you can't die in this place. I went to bite back but swallowed my words as I remembered Kurt. He laid beside us under a dirty sheet. Nia must have caught on because she reached over and tugged the fabric down to reveal Kurt's injury. 
Now his ruined throat was filled with what looked to be ice. Only the ice looked tainted, putrid almost, with sallow mycelia exploding within. Crimson tributaries forced their way through the frost up on the left and down on the right. Tingling dread crept in a similar manner, up my spine and neck and flowing back down through my chest. If this was reality now, then well, I don't know. What moral is there? What sadistic law of nature permits this? I probably should have started off with this, but there's a name written inside the front cover. Anthony Grisha means as much to me as John Doe, but the handwriting matches whoever wrote in these pages, so it's safe to assume that they're one and the same. I realize now that I'm at a crossroads. I see two choices to make here, hide my discovery or report it. Honestly, I don't feel like keeping quiet and having to live with it. Luckily, I had the foresight of donning protective gloves before taking the journal, and I've been using them since, so my fingerprints aren't smeared all over the pages. Means that I can return it and then report through my satellite radio that I found a body, all without a hitch. Don't worry, I'll take photos of the pages I'm gonna transcribe. Over half of it is illegible though, whether due to numb fingers or a broken mind, I can't tell. I rang the project manager this morning, told her about the body and she said to just hang in there. They won't be making any unnecessary trips apparently and she knows as well as I do that the cold will prevent any losses in the realm of identification. Forensics will be along in the heli, which is due in one week. The first thing that I'm doing when I get home is having a hot shower for longer than it's probably healthy and posting these logs. Returning the journal went smoothly, relatively speaking. Bending stiff fingers into place isn't the most pleasant of tasks, but I think that I'm in the all clear. And back to the matter at hand. Having a bit of a hard time writing all this from photos on my phone, but it'll do. I've cut a few parts which seem like pointless rambling, as well as pages marked by water damage in some disconcerting brown and red splotches. Here it is. I'm not sure why I keep on with this journaling. In no world do I imagine its pages will see the light of any day except the wildly inconsistent sun of this place. Though calling that thing a sun would be like calling a faulty light bulb a fireplace. There's no warmth or constancy to it. Rather befitting for wherever we are. I also quite literally have all the time in the world. I guess I'm not in the world though, not anymore, not really. So I would like to describe my memories, my experiences, this godforsaken place in as vivid detail as possible, because that's how this place is. There's no hyperbole to be had, its aspects, its nuances, all grim, lurid sores competing for my attention. Perhaps it's a comfort and nothing more. Reiteration for the sake of it. Well, I would rather think of anything else, any place else, but here is all there is. Maintenance. With no other choice, I learned quickly what to do and what to avoid, either empirically alongside my fellow captives or from their lessons. Every few actually, just whenever we need to, we set out in the snowfield above and alternating groups of two or three. 
Oftentimes the invisible creatures move to someplace else, leaving the path clear for us. I would let them use my ice picks, though I made it clear that if it was my turn, I would always have one in hand. The third member used some kind of socket wrench with a sharp stone driven into the end. The iceberg is possibly the most treacherous ground that I've ever had to traverse. Fishers hide under deceptive snow overhangs. One misstep on such unstable ground means falling a hundred feet into an icy casket. That wouldn't be so bad since you could eventually climb your way out. Only the boar worms that tunnel deep inside the ice are quick to snatch up anything coming their way. And worse still, those see-through monsters come and go as they please. I myself have been caught, what, eight odd times. The way their mandibles carve and cleave, they must be serrated because it hurts. It hurts so much that there's no real word for it. I would much rather not experience the sensation again, but we have to go searching. We have to. Most of the time we find little, usually nothing. A beaten metal sheet or frost-blackened planks are cause for celebration. You see, our cliff dwelling doesn't stay by itself. If only it were that easy. No, the iceberg is sinking constantly at a glacial rate into the abyssal brine below. Perpetual snowfall packs itself down into ice over time and roughly maintains the iceberg's elevation. So we have to deconstruct, dismember the lower levels and lug them back to the top, drive old rebar into the cliff with blunt objects and fasten everything back together. If that's not work enough, the whole iceberg sways imperceptibly over time. It tilts forwards to precarious angles, resting for a drown-out solstice before tipping backwards again. Lose your presence of mind and there's no second chance. Down into the freezing waters you go, torn apart by scaled monsters with their jagged spines and shark's teeth. Never blessed with the mercy of death until... Every cell in your violated body is torn and strewn asunder. Of course, there's a respite when the iceberg leans backwards. It's not something to get complacent with. Listen to that nagging reminder telling you that at some point, you'll be back in the same spot. That's your survival instinct talking, obsolete as it is. And even then, when you feel prepared for anything, this place always has an ace up its sleeve. Blubbers. My first introduction to this concept was, well, it was a while after my arrival. I would like to embellish the memory to say that we were sitting around a fire as something to that effect, but there was no chance of that. Even behind cover from the wind, it's like the warped physical laws here outright forbid as sparks and flames. And though I sat beside Alexi and Nia on a pile of salt-crusted cloth, Without much else to pass the time, we had engaged in half-hearted games and hobbies. And contrary to his appearance, Iago had a strong singing voice. I'm kind of amazed that he can remember any songs. The man can't recall his own name for Pete's sake. I guess it's like Alzheimer's. Music's the last to flee memory. Or so I've heard. At the time he stood out on the platform before us, he was singing, I think it was, green green grass of home in spite of the choppy gale his voice carried it was pleasant and this song in particular rang with a nostalgia 
Once Diego had finished, he stood with his hands held together. A pretty good old man, Alexi cheered. I bobbed my head in agreement. Yeah, that's really something. God knows I wouldn't opinion you as a singer, said Nia. Iago chuckled and for a fleeting moment, our troubles were lost. I guess we were too distracted to hear the heavy shuffling from below because we fell back to silence when an enormous hand wrapped around the edge of the platform. Whatever pulled itself over that edge, it was no creation of any sane god. Gray blubbery flesh rippled in the wind. A disgusting, bloated thing the size of a tractor tire peered over at us. A head. Scattered perforations in these sides must have been ears, but it had no facial features other than a burbling, egg-shaped hole right in the middle. Two or three more sets of hands clambered their way up to us, somehow crawling up the ice as if they were geckos. None of these details held a candle to what their overall features resembled. Infants. Elephant-sized, hell-spawned toddlers crawling on all fours. Laggardly with age, Iago had no chance. Swollen, sticky fingers curled around his body, squeezing him in a grasp that even world-record strongmen could not escape. The awful harmony they made upon claiming their new plaything is etched into my soul. Gargling coos of childlike elation, deep in pitch and easily drowning out his hysterics. In the brief period before they left, I watched oblivious to these screams of Nia and Alexi as the creatures shook him around and pulled at his limbs. All I could hear were joints and bones snapping and cracking. The creature holding Yago brought him up to the dribbling hole of its face. The hole dilated, revealing a cavernous passage of dripping flesh, and with slowness I'm sure was intentional. Pushed him inside, feet first up to his neck. It closed around him with such pressure that I could hear his body breaking, and with crushed lungs he couldn't even scream. And just like that they descended, leaving us with a cold empty space shaped like an old man. That's how it goes here, no mercy, just suffering. Endless, indiscriminate suffering. Still, there are a handful of things that we can predict, or at the very least, expect. The ice. Now it may be logical to melt the ice and drink it. We are, after all, still subject to thirst and hunger despite needing no food or water to live. Fresh snow from up above is okay, but the ice is bad water. It's rotten. It putrefies and becomes teeming with disease. In particular, it hosts some kind of parasite. Drink it and they'll start breeding inside you until your organs are rife with them. They sap any moisture they can from your body, drying you into a shriveled husk. Oh, and they're permanent too. There's literally no way to get them out. Now I mentioned boarworms before. They're not an issue most of the time. Sometimes if you look deep into the ice cliff, you can see them burrowing within. They are lightning fast though, so I can never get a clear picture of them. From what I can gather, they're long, thick, and leech-like. Their heads open up to reveal strangely mechanical sets of spike balls which spin against each other to grind through the ice. I don't know if they're immune to the parasites. Maybe they're symbiotic. Worm eat ice, parasite take water, who knows. This nameless place has fates aplenty except for one. Death. 
I didn't know how it worked at first, but it later on became clear. Months, perhaps even years after Yago's abduction, something happened that was gut-wrenching and incredible in equal measure. About 25 feet off from us, the ice began growing outwards. Small mounds at first, swelling like rotten pustules. It was when a familiar visage began forming that it clicked, and we built a walkway across. Through some uncouth law of nature, Iago grew in the form of an ice sculpture, and then color flushed his skin, staring at his fingertips and slowly spreading. He eventually broke free with a crack and a pop and fell down into our arms, vacant-eyed and nude, a grotesque and wholly unnatural birth. Miyago was never the same after that. Deference held our tongues from prying until the curiosity got too much to bear. Even when we prodded him and asked him about what had happened, not one word has spilled from his lips. I shudder to think about what might have happened during his absence at the hands of those abominations, things that considered him nothing more than a toy to wear out. We've taken to calling them blubbers. I would say it describes them to a T. With a honed skillet hiding, they're not too hard to avoid. The problem is hearing them approach before they arrive because if you don't, well, no need to repeat what's already written. Past that, a worse revelation came to light. No matter what we do or what happens to us, no matter how violent or peaceful the death, we'll return, spat right back out into the fray every time, no matter what. From this point, the frequency of errors in scribbling rises drastically. I find it strange the near-instant transition from madman scrawl to legible, comprehensive records just a page over as such, there's a few things left for me to post here. This reads as a fantasy as most would have realized. In any other scenario, I would settle on that and leave it in the past. The reality is, however, there's a naked dead body hundreds of miles out in the tundra. Forensics will look for any signs of foul play, of course, but why come out this far to dispose of a body? How? And besides, there's no major trauma to the body unless he was posed like some grim marionette. The likely conclusion is he died from the cold. Emil, our geologist, wants the first half of tomorrow to confer and discuss our findings, so I'm gonna go and get some shut-eye. It's hard, admittedly, knowing there's a frozen cadaver in walking distance from me, but at least I don't have to bear that burden alone anymore. And good night, for now. So, it's been a few days since I last wrote about this, and been crunching pretty hard. Hopefully the quotas met before pickup arrives tomorrow. Though I think we'll have some spare time with the forensics team on site. Sorry, I'm stalling. Here's the next section. The Uncoupled The brutality displayed in this realm is nothing to be scoffed at, but at the very least you grow accustomed to it. Meat and bone lose their sting. And yet, there are some things the scars can't toughen you against. One in particular stands out to me. Kurt and I were on a scouting trip. We had long since made amends by this time and agreed to let bygones be just that. Plodding along the ridge of a snow dune, Kurt cocked his head to look at something, and then grabbed my shoulder with a wary firmness. 
get down now. We both dropped down below cover. I hadn't seen anything, but by now I trusted Kurt's judgment. What? What did you see? I caught it in the corner of my eye. Thank God I ain't look at it. Without thinking, I went to peek over into the open snowfield, and Kurt tore me back down by the scruff of my jacket, bringing me to eye level. What are you doing, you oaf? Don't look at it. I stared confused. At what? The uncoupled. I should really get Ellie to go over. Well, slow down, uncoupled. Yeah, don't look too deep into the name. I only seen it in the corner of my vision before. Just a dark shape. Nothing more than that, a stain. A stain on the world. Carefully, I turned my head in the direction that he had seen it, as if I'd be able to see right through the snow. Okay, and if you can't look at it, how do you know? I've been plenty here before you, mate. Knew one or two of them, this kid called a Kent, yup. He looked, said it was hollow and sort of an empty imprint that might have once been a person. I think he said something along the lines of, It's like if you took somebody and stripped everything away except their being. Still not sure what he really meant, but it's enough to know I ain't never gonna look at it. Well, that and the fact that a moment later he's already 30 feet ahead and stumbling towards it. I'm pausing to let Kurt's words sink in, I muttered. Well, where is he now? I mean, Miago got taken and he came back. He shook his head, eyes focused on nothing. I couldn't tell ya. Only way I even remember him is because of his voice. The screams, the god-awful wailing surfing across the dunes and through the air. In those short times when the wind stumbles and you just listen. Following his lead, I cocked an ear upwards, a frostbitten air slicing past my skin. There was nothing other than the howling gale and the hammering of my heart. However, the longer that I listened, I picked up on something distinct from the wind whistling. It did sound like screaming. For all I know, Kurt could have just been pulling a sick prank. It's easy to hear things that aren't out there, to see what you want to see. Only as I focused, it began to morph into the tone and timbre of a voice that I still remembered, one that I remembered well. It was the last voice that I had heard before this all happened. I tried not to think about it. Help me. The words were hissed straight into my ear. It startled me so bad that my legs straightened and I hopped off the ground. No question that time, it was his voice. After that, it wasn't a matter of not thinking about it, but of trying to forget. I must have been in a trance when Kurt spoke up again, snapping his fingers. Hey, you alright? Come on, we should get back. I ain't seen nothing out there worth the risk today. Just, uh, if you ever see something in the corner of your eyes, something darker than dark, leave. I nodded, grimacing, and we made our way back down to our home. Weather. If constant freezing snowfall wasn't enough, the weather knows worst cruelty. For the most part, we have shelter if it starts raining anything untoward. If you're caught out on the snowfield, though, well, let's say you'll be back in a few weeks at the best. Months or years at worst. That happened one time while Eleanor and Alexia went out scavenging. They must have been on their way back when it started raining these razor-sharp ice shards. 
finger-sized blades that slice straight through canvas and embedded deep into wooden platforms. Pain and snarls from above heralded Alexei's arrival, the rope ladder quivering under his descent. The best way that I can describe how he looked was as if a shrapnel grenade had detonated three feet in front of him. Well, all around him, really. Deep, weeping gashes littered his body and strands of flayed skin danced in the wind. It was like looking at a mangled human-shaped version of those cheese strings. You know, the ones that you peel strips off of. I wish I could taste one of those again. Anyway, there wasn't much that we could do except bandage him up, and even then, it was more so we didn't have to see his injuries. I realized in my stupidity that something we had overlooked. He was alone. Wait, Alexei, where's Ellie? Nia whimpered. Did she fall behind? He sat there lifeless. It could have been the bandages wrapped around his head. I think he was just too broken to register the question. Alexei, where is she? With his throat and chest a pulpy mess, Alexei's voice was a little more than a grating rattle. Didn't make it. Ankles, Achilles sliced to pieces. She fell down a crack. Nia just stood there, letting her head low back and let out a forlorn wail into the sky. One of transparent despair and indignance at this world. One that I felt all too closely. I remember looking into the eyes and seeing torn flesh dangling from a boarworm's mouth. Dull pink smudges carried through the ice as they tunneled. A while later, two or three weeks at a guess, her rebirth began. It seems that whenever this happens, they aren't too far away. 30 feet tops, but I don't want to jinx it. Maybe it's luck, more likely it's just how this place works. I dream sometimes of being reborn from the ice, only to fall out rigid and lifeless. But all we get are failed attempts. Very, very dark. I almost sympathize with the author, I just don't want to believe it. I would like to just pass it off as a testament to human creativity. Yet at the same time, is it better to be sure of true horror or to leave questions unanswered, left to echo around in the edifice of unknowing? I'll be thinking about that for sure, though something in me leans toward the latter. By tomorrow, I'll have the answers, or so I hope. Until then, my modus operandi will be hammering out research and then sitting tight under a blanket. Stay safe out there. Early finish on the road of today, which leaves me with two or three hours before our escort arrives. This is the final just about legible segment of the journal, and I can't help but have a strange feeling after reading it. There's a handful of disquieting notions in my head, but I'll save them for after. It's best to read this first, what is in effect a surrogate denouement. That said, there's no resolution to be had, no convergent threads. There's no satisfying conclusion for this dismal tome of events. Whatever the case, it's up to the reader to draw their own meanings, whatever you see fit. The Storm and There's one more thing I find worthy of putting on paper, and that is the storm. It happens at random, according to Kurt. There's no pattern to its visits. I've only witnessed it twice in my time here. The first time, it swirled on the distant skyline. I found myself totally wrapped in its magnificence. A terrifying sight to behold. 
We've been imprisoned in a night that must have lasted at least two or three years, relatively speaking, and in accordance with the darkness, the only light being the bruised, moonless firmament. It took a while for the black clouds to register congealing across the waters. While it wasn't hard to notice after deep crimson flashes lit up in its bowels, pulsing vermilion glimmers so full of energy that I could feel heat wash over my face from across the waters. That heat grew into a roiling whirlwind as the storm neared. The others were quick to stir from their meager shut-eye when they too felt it. What the heck's that? Nia stammered evidently as clueless as I was. Oh no, no please god no not again, Kurt croaked. Guys, what's happening? What is that out there? I asked. Storms are coming. We all turned to Yego and sink. Those were the only words that he had spoken since he had returned from the blubbers, and the mere sound of his voice came as a shock. We pressed for details, but he had already sunken back to his dead-tongued dejection. Kurt was no help either. He just shivered and stared paralytic into the churning depths of the storm head. I'll be honest, after the storm drew nearer and pattering rain replaced the snow, a certain excitement overtook me. Inky blots darted across the flashing lights deep in the storm clouds, captivating me in awe. I threw my head back and opened my mouth, allowing the rain to spread its warmth across my tongue. It felt heavenly, the sensation of warmth after so long deprived was like nothing that I had felt before. The euphoria was short-lasting and concern replaced it as the raindrops turned scalding. When they started to burn and sizzle off my face, I flinched and dove back under cover. Before long, the air was an all-enveloping haze of steam. It was like we had just entered some malfunctioning steam room. Each breath brought with it a flaring heat that spread from my lungs to the rest of my organs. Funny, isn't it? In winter, it's cold and dreary and you wish it was summer instead and then when summer rolls around, the beating sun and stifling nights make you yearn for the cooler seasons. In that boiling cloud, I begged for the cold to come back. At least we could layer up in coats and pants. There's nothing to be done about the heat. You can't exactly take your skin off when it's too hot. Momentary relief came as cool trickling streams from above but my relief was sorely misguided when I understood what it was. Meltwater. Minor runnels quickly inflated to a formidable downpour, and then into a violent rapid. Nothing could be heard over the roar of rushing water. Blind, breathless, and panicking, I reached out for a hold, my fingers wrapped around metal, a pole driven into the ice. I held on with everything that I had. There was a thump beside me, a gurgled shriek. Eleanor. Despite my total exertion to keep from being swept away, I outstretched a hand. Ellie, here, grab it. I screamed, a candle in the wind to the rapids. Without delay, I felt her slippery fingers intertwine with my own. I heaved. I felt as if my spine would snap right there and then. I just didn't have the strength. The cold torrent stabbed all the excess energy from my muscles. Help me! Following the cry, I barely made out the figure of Kurt clinging helplessly to a torn canvas. The steam swallowed him up again and my stomach nodded when a harsh tearing noise scraped my eardrums. 
In total, uncut despair, I watched as Kurt plummeted past the platform and out of sight. And as if on cue, Ellie's fingers slipped away. My heart felt as empty as my palm. Her screams faded from my ears, replaced by the incessant torrent. I don't remember the wait following, only the waterfall suddenly abating, giving way to familiar gray murk hanging in the sky. Kurt and Eleanor were gone. In any other situation, I might have found solace knowing that they had drowned, or perhaps even died on impact with the ocean. Of course, that was out of the question. We were left knowing with absolute certainty that they were going through unimaginable suffering, and far more to come. Whether at the hands of unseen leviathans, blubbers, or any other nameless things lurking in the depths, it didn't matter. I just hoped whatever found them was vicious enough to tear them apart, digest their bodies into nothing, and allow them to return. A week passed and Eleanor began to regrow. Another two weeks later and Kurt appeared. After their rebirth, we all knew better than to prod. Just leave them be, let them process it, and let them decompress. Loss may seem a trivial affliction without death, but it would be naive to think of loss as a purely physical separation. Yes, you may be taken away, put through unspeakable suffering, and then be reborn. For lack of a better term, those victims lose some integral part of their being, slowly chipped and whittled away. Something so abstract is so important, yet it cannot be grasped by the hand. Once it's gone, there's no reeling it back. And still we went on. We had no choice and fell back on mindless habits for comfort. In a way, we found a paltry success in learning what makes this place tick. Trial and error, however awful those trials have been. My thoughts lingered on the storm after it happened a second time. We were seasoned, prepared for what was to come. Making sure that our cover was uninfiltrated by the elements, we pulled together ropes and twine and tied them around ourselves and fastened the ends to various driven poles and stakes. Maybe I had been too focused on the storm and its sizzling droplets to catch Iago unfastening himself and standing up. A yell from Alexi brought me to attention, but it was too late. Iago, already several paces away, lumbered toward the edge of the platform. We all thought that he would jump, futile as it'd be, but he didn't. Instead, he threw off his shoes, socks, jacket, and pants, everything, until he stood stark naked, exposed to the elements. At this point, we knew better than jumping up to help. We had no fault in this, he would come back eventually after all. Yet I could sense something changing. I don't know what or when it started, but it was there. A shift, a redirection of energy. He howled as his skin bubbled and blistered under the storm's ferocity. I think it was when his skin began sloughing off in great swaths that it happened. Without warning, Iago's entire being burst into a furious red flame. The sparkling vermilion plasma crackling with the intensity of lightning. Eyes watering from the heat, I watched transfixed as his silhouette, shrouded in fire, seemed to be eaten away into nothing. Not a puff of smoke or steam billowed from him. His backlit shadow disintegrated inch by inch, until the last smattering of fragments were burned away entirely. Absolutely nothing remained of him once the storm passed. Not one stray hair or nail fragment. 
Of course, we expected him to grow out from the ice face, right away in fact, but nothing happened. We scanned every last inch of the cliff. Nothing. It's been hell. I can't even guess how long it's been since then. It's all just so arbitrary, meaningless. Could be decades, centuries, millennia. My family might be long dead by now. Even humanity could already have gone extinct. And in all that time, I've yet to see even a hint of Yago's return. Maybe he's in another, worse place. Maybe he's dead. Or maybe he made it back home. Those are the only possibilities that I can imagine and as far as I can see, that's a two-third chance of escaping this place. Escaping eternity. Next time the storm comes around, I think that I'll follow that old man's example. Stripped down to my most human form, raw for the whole world to see. Well, not completely. I'll be bringing this notebook with me. I'll clutch it tight to my heart as the tempest roars around us. And maybe, just maybe, the rain will set me free. So here we are. I'm not really sure what to make of this. It's almost like two situations bound as one. An unexplainable body and an unbelievable journal. Together, it's like the opposite poles of two magnets pulling together into some cohesive whole. But as I said in the prologue to this entry, there are still a few things that I keep thinking over, over and over to no avail. According to the journal, the last location that I can identify would be Monterosa. That's between Italy and Switzerland, over 3,000 miles away from here. Even if somebody wanted to dump a body, they would need air transport. There are no roads not this far out. There are plenty of remote places to bury a body and here is not one of them. Permafrost starts less than two feet down, so you're more likely to break your shovel before digging out a grave. But if there is a third party involved, why would they pose the body? Unless they simply left him here to die, but why? I hear something. I think that the chopper's here. I'll see what I can gather from the forensics guys and to finish this afterwards. Wow, I didn't expect them to be so forthcoming. They flicked through the journal and ran a missing persons check for one Anthony Grisha. And it's true. British, last known location 11 days ago climbing Monte Rosa with a friend. A friend who's also missing. We've been here two weeks though and I only found the body five days in. Which means the longest period between disappearance and discovery would be two days. I'm starting to get a headache trying to rationalize all this. And there's something else bothering me too. Is there an old man missing from somewhere in the world? Somebody who could be compared to a certain Hemingway character. If so, will he be found somewhere cold and isolated or perhaps somewhere more populated? And if he's found alive, what would he say? What would he recount? In all honesty, I hope these questions stay unanswered. I don't want to know. Whatever he'd reveal to the world does not belong here. It might prove something that should remain in the dark, quiet, unknown. A place that I've already stepped one misguided foot into. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.